Well, welcome again to the Comic Book Historian Podcast. This is Alex Grand with co-host Jim Thompson. Jim, how are you doing today? Hey, Alex. Good to be back. All right. So today we're doing our uh, second look episode again. We had some good uh, fan reception to that, where each of us talks about a various book that we've read on comic history. We have our guest today, Peter Coogan. Ladies and gentlemen, Pete is a uh, comicologist, a professor and teacher <laughs> at Washington University in St. Louis, who is an author himself, who is going to be talking about his book. Pete, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Just to kind of go over again what Second Look is, Second Look is when we devote a podcast to going over an archival work or some sort of comic history book or some sort of book that collects something from the past that we can discuss, whether it's a genre or historical or scholarly perspective. So before we get started, let's catch up on what's been going on. Now, Jim, you've had a very productive month so far. You've been to a few comic conventions, and you have one coming up. Actually, we're going to both be there at WonderCon next week. How's your month been so far? Remember, you mentioned it last episode. It's been crazy. I mean, like, I don't think I've ever had as crazy a a month in terms of comic stuff, because the first weekend of the month, I went to Comic Fest in San Diego for one day, just long enough to say I was there when Arlen Schumer yelled at everybody. So there was that moment in history. I was there for that. I didn't do any panels. I just went and hung out with friends. And then I came back the next day for EagleCon in Los Angeles at Cal State Los Angeles, where I do a versus panel. It's very silly and stupid, and it's great fun. That's about like kind of who would win in a fight kind of thing. Superhero, one superhero versus another one. Yeah, I represented Saturn Girl versus Professor X. I won both rounds. I was victorious. So there's that. I wish I had that good a record in court, but it was it was good. And <laughs> and then I had a weekend break. And then because my wife was going to an academic conference in Seattle at the same time that I was invited to be on another kind of silly panel, but great fun with a guy named Tyler McPhail invited me to do this where you argue about You're on teams and you argue about different meaningless, meaningless questions like who wears it best, Gollum or Tarzan? Nice. Uh, The answer obviously being Gollum because he accessorizes, whereas Tarzan Ah. doesn't wear anything. So you won by, by actually putting the definition of the character in there. Well done. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. It was like you had to describe Colossus's and Deadpool's first date, things like that. So it was it was just goofy fun. But we had like close to 300 people in the room yeah. and the energy was fantastic. I mean, I'm not used to that at academic conferences. That's for sure. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And then coming up next weekend is WonderCon. I'm doing a paper at the Comic Arts Conference. Which, Pete, you're going to come see this time? Yeah, I'm at the Comics Arts Conference co-hosting it with Travis and Kate. I will be there on Saturday at 10, 10.30 or 10.40. So, And all three presenters are comic book historian members. So that's exciting. Nice. CBH. All right. And then, Pete, now you're co-hosting the Comics Art Conference at WonderCon with Kate and Travis. Is that Travis Langley? Yeah, Travis Langley and Kate McClancy. Okay, the co-chairs. Yeah. So Travis Langley, I don't think I met him, but I think we are Facebook acquaintances. And yeah, he's a comic book scholar, as yourself is. Is that correct? That's correct. I took Jim's advice, and I've been kind of crash coursing on the uh, Doom Patrol by Grant Morrison. And I've been really enjoying it. 
it's a bit surreal. Almost more reads like a Doctor Strange comic than a mutant superhero team. I know there's a lot of comparison between Doom Patrol and X-Men, but Grant Morrison almost takes it into a surreal, magical aspect. It's quite a journey, but I definitely see now that this TV show that's being released now is more Grant Morrison, more so than anything with the Silver Age. I think that's an interesting point, actually, and the same thing kind of happened with Frank Miller and Daredevil. It would be nice if creators could get recreator credits, because when we think of Daredevil, we think of Frank Miller's Daredevil, right? Right. And when you think, and when Doom Patrol, I mean, I started reading Doom Patrol long before Grant Morrison, but now Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, just like Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, it's an inherent part of the character now. And so it would be interesting to see if there could be some kind of recreator credit because that's what the character is in many ways now, or the team in this case. Right, in this case, the team. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just reading the Arnold Drake run doesn't Mm -hmm. quite match up with the TV show. Going into that surreal angle or a uh, Strange Tales kind of twist on Doom Patrol by Grant Morrison. Onward and upward, guys. Let's talk about the various books we're bringing to the table today. So the book I'm talking about is Howard Chaikin, Hey Kids Comics, just came out last year. And there's a new trade paperback available for anyone interested, available on Amazon and your local comic store. It was uh, published over at Image Comics. And it's a great six-issue series that goes into the world of the comic book makers. You know, Joe Simon era the Golden Age artists that also worked in the Silver Age and faced various things and events in the comic field. So it's fascinating because these are based on real people. And although the names are changed, the company names are changed, each person is exhibiting some characteristic that happened to a real-life comic book maker, a comic book writer, comic book artist, what have you. And reading it, it kind of goes back and forth in time. So it labels this set of pages as, okay, 1943 or something. And then the next one is 1978. And the next one is 2015. And it goes back and forth, time jumps. And so you'll see the same character aged and then younger again and various things that you go through. And I think a lot of comic book historian or enthusiasts will find some of the anecdotes really familiar. So for example, like there's this character in the in the series named Laszlo Fabian. And, you know, although it's true, there's no one person that totally summarizes any one real person. You can kind of get a sense that this character is probably mostly Alex Toth, if I were to put a guess on it. Because there were some references, for example, of the famous Alex Toth throwing the editor out the window for not giving him his paycheck story. And Laszlo Fabian in this comic does mention that. Also, there's like a quick temper and anger with a lot of talent, which a lot of people would say Alex Toth had those qualities. Then you have a company called Verve, which I think is the Chaikin versus version of Marvel, because there's a character, the main editor of Verve Comics is named Bob Rose, and I think he's kind of the take on Stan Lee. You see, like in the 50s, that this Bob Rose character is friends with a Joe Manili-type character who dies after drinking with the friends. And then you see that that played havoc on his self-esteem and where he was going in comics. 
But then you see that he starts filling in dialogue balloons in a way that really reverberated with the youth culture in this world. And then he becomes a phenomenon. And all the other artists are like, he's a phenomenon, but he just fills in our dialogue balloons. What's going on? You know? And so it's really interesting to kind of see, although we hear about these things, it's interesting to read it from almost like a first-person perspective where you're there as it's happening and then seeing what it turns into later. There's another character, Jess Mayberg, which I think is, I think, I'm not sure, but I think that's supposed to represent Julius Schwartz. There's another guy named Ron Fogel, who I'm pretty sure is meant to be Bob Kane because he's creator of a character that almost sounds like Batman in Midnight. And it's funny, his description is incapable of writing or drawing the work to which his name is signed. And I thought that was kind of funny. There's also these two guys, Erwin Glasser and Ira Gelbart. And I think they basically represent Siegel and Schuster and how they created the Superman of this world and how poorly they're treated and how they think they got such a good deal by selling the rights to this character and how they're essentially homeless, you know, 15 years or so later. There's also, like, these two guys that are pretty sure are Donenfeld and Leibowitz, and their names are Hershenson and Berkowitz. And the way they talk to the talent, it's very dismissive, more dollars and cents, and how, well, look, they're just the hired helpers. You can feel some of the emotions of this as you're reading these kind of injustices happening to these creators from back then. There's this character, Ray Clark, who kind of looks like Gil Kane. He may be Gil Kane. It's funny. He's described as morally compromised, artistically inconsistent. But there's a scene where the Bob Rose character, who I think is Stan Lee, makes a mention of, you know, I don't like his characters. They kind of seem a little too gay for me, right? And I think didn't Stan... Wasn't there a story that Stan may have said something like that about Gil Kane's characters? Have you guys read that? Yeah. Yeah, I heard something like that somewhere. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So so I do think that these little sentences, I think, point to who they're probably talking about. Is there a Kirby and a Ditko facsimile? Uh, I didn't catch a Ditko one, but there's definitely the Kirby guy. And uh, his name is Sid Mitchell. I'm pretty sure it's him. He's described as a four-color visionary without whom there is no Verve comics. That also becomes his inevitable disposability. There's conversations between Bob Rose and Sid Mitchell, which I think are Stanley and Jack Kirby. And Jack Kirby is saying, look, I want more credit. I want a piece of the merchandise, yada, yada. And then Bob Rose, possibly Stanley, is kind of leading him on saying, yeah, oh, we'll get there, baby, you and me, you know, um, these little funny, snazzy sentences and you could see the frustration in this Sid Mitchell character's face. I think what's interesting about Chaikin is he knew all, all these guys. Yes. So because he knew these guys, he actually talked about them or talked with them and worked with them, inked them. He felt what they were going through. So he's putting that into this comic and that makes it really worthwhile to read. It's not just reading about, okay, this guy did this. You're actually feeling the back and forth discussions that are frustrating these creators. The Verve Age of Comics essentially starts when the Cosmos Quartet is created by uh, Bob Rose and Sid Mitchell. And it's just a lot of fun. Like they have like these almost like Marvel Age characters like Tarantulad instead of Spider-Man, right? It's just really well done. There's somewhere, I'm not going to name names, but there's somewhere you see two people sleep together and you think, oh, did their real lives 
people sleep together? Like it, you, you wonder now, because if certain things are true that we've read about, then maybe certain things aren't. But we are not meant to. Howard did say, do not assume that anything that happens in here is actually true. But there's a lot of true things that happen in it. One of them I found really interesting. I mean, I guess I understood, but you could really feel it in this when the character, one of the artists in here in the late 60s to an art show, a modern art show, and sees what looks like one of his comics, but essentially traced and blown up with the little dots in it at a modern art store selling for like a million dollars. And he's like, hey, what the hell? I drew that 20 years ago for a war comic, and now it's being sold for you know a million dollars by this artist. And all he did is trace what I did and just make it larger. So that's and, Russ Heath and, and Lichtenstein, I guess? Yeah. That's right. You feel the anger when you're reading these sentences, these injustices that happen, but then these are the guys that created the visual language that a lot of the new guys are kind of either incorporating or copying. And it's funny, there's a character in here named Tom Hollenbeck. He's the new artist that a lot of the kids love. So maybe he's almost representing like an image comics type thing. But Tom Hollenbeck Prominent reinventor of other people's original ideas. Fans say he's better than he actually is, and he has no reason to doubt them. Sure. And the guy that I think is Gil Kane is screaming at this young guy going, hey, look, I want five cents. Every time a comic of yourselves where you're copying the stances that I created back in the 40s. And so you can see it's not just them getting upset at the business people and the uh, modern artists that are cashing in on their work but also on the younger artists that are essentially swiping him left and right. Also, the growth of this Bob Rose character, where he was essentially just good friends with the Joe Manili type guy, whose name is Brian Callanan. I think that's the Joe Manili guy. They call him massively prolific verb house artist. All those classic stories people remember fondly are the ones he didn't actually draw. Because that's essentially those Atlas comics that he did so many of, Hardly people remember those. They all remember the Marvel stuff that Kirby did. This Brian Callanout character dies after drinking with some friends that night, and then you see the Bob Rose character going, God, what am I going to do? There's no future in comics. Psychiatrists and these senators are coming after comics. Like, what's there to do left? And then you see he becomes this phenomenon by the way he's writing, filling in Sid Mitchell's dialogue balloons, and essentially taking all the credit. So it's a really fascinating read. I really highly recommend it for people that have a curiosity about the history of comics and what the creators went through, the injustices that happened as a multi-billion dollar industry grew around them and how the vast majority of them never got a piece of it. And really maybe Bob Rose slash Stan Lee did, but only because he created his own character himself to take part and wedge himself into what all the corporate people were really enjoying the whole time. But yeah, some of the superhero characters that they reference, like Power Glow, is definitely a Green Lantern you know, reference, things like that. And they even have a little phrase, an evil shadow, find power in the light. So I know Jim likes that. That's actually, I remember with Cavalier and Clay, that was my favorite aspect, was not the clones of the actual creators, but the, the revisions of existing comics. So you would have, you know, Chabon was really good at creating things like the escapist and moth girl that was half the fun of the book was the actual narrative of the comics rather than the biographical stuff they can kind of capture almost 
what made them great and then simplify it into like another version of it. And then you almost appreciate what the main ingredient was in the original. Have you uh, ever read Alan Moore's, was it 63 or 64? 63, 1963, yeah. yeah, that's that's fun. I mean, I don't think he, he didn't really, they, they didn't finish it, but the ones they did, I did read them and they were fantastic. Yeah, I love those. I love those. They totally yeah. worked as comics of their uh, era. The same thing was true with Cavalier and Clay. Right. Have you ever read Al Williamson's success story? You know, it's hard to tell exactly what it is, but it's a fictionalized version of Bob Kane. Oh, it is? Uh, yeah, yeah. Google Al Williamson, the success story. It's, uh, it's easily available online. Mm. And it's an EC comic, you know, and so the Baldo is the artist. But what he does is... It's a Warren comic. A Warren oh, comic. sorry, it's a Warren comic, yeah. But it looks like an EC comic. Basically, yeah. he farms out each element of the production. He tells each one of them, sort of, he steals ideas from each of the people. And he, so he doesn't do anything. He just kind of puts the comic together from what other people have done without them knowing that he's not doing the rest of it. Right. And so, right, right. and of course, because of the nature, it's a horror comic and the nature of it is it ends badly for him, let's just right. say. That's right. Yeah. Because there's probably a morality tale with a death at the end. One character that I thought was really fascinating, but Dan Fleischer, I think he is supposed to represent Will Eisner. So Dan Fleischer, he's described as an, an artist responsible for the form's language, but also a publisher who's just another asshole. <laughs> yeah, that's And what be. I find funny about that, and that's actually an interesting distinction, right, between him and Bob Kane, is that this Fleischer character, and maybe Eisner too, was a true gifted artist and visual artist and did put help form and showed what you can do with a graphic narrative. But at the same time... You know, they also mention in this how this Fleischer character, just like Will Eisner did, had a military contract for military booklets because Will Eisner sent an interview that pays better, which is fine. Then he also did employ people with his spirit and they ghosted for him and uh, they didn't get credit. And, you know, he kept most of the money. And I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying is that that's a lot of behavior that a lot of people tend to look down on. But because he did give form to the visual language, he's almost like a hybrid character. And I feel like that's one of the interesting aspects to this Hey Kids comics. Now, again, I'm not saying that these characters are those people, but I am saying that there's a lot of enough of a similarity where I think at least greater than 51 percent of that character are those real people. You know what I mean? Well, mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up Eisner just because he did his own version of this a long time before Jaken, which was the Dreamer graphic novel which is about like a, a shop during his era of comics, uh, mm -hmm. which was kind of fun, but also a little bit self-aggrandizing, I think, as I remember it. Did you ever read that, Pete? Uh, yeah, that was interesting. But uh, the thing about that was the way it really sort of focused on Eisner's memory and vision of his life, right? Yeah. And also he wanted to get across the artistic or, or emotional truth of all that you know, not really worrying about factualness of it. And I think that's what Chaykin's, I'm actually looking at Chaykin's book now, Eight Kids Comics, and you can see, you know, especially if you've read these histories of comics, you can see where there's parallels. And he's just, he's trying to get at that larger idea. The same thing, uh, Cavalier and Clay, you know, about how comics are created and how creators are treated and right. what the industry looks like and who gets credit, who doesn't get credit. 
and how, you know, in some ways it's a really small industry, right? And all these people know each other over years and years. That's right. I think what's also cool is how there's maybe that small number and they all just kind of know each other. And what you get from this is as you go from one year and back and forth, five out of seven will be at an event and they'll be like, oh, did you hear about this guy? He totally got screwed by that company. Puts you in the middle of that conversation when you're reading this comic. Really great. Did either of you read his Satellite Sam series from a few years ago? Chakens? Yeah. No. It was about early television. And and set up very much like this, only there was a murder aspect to it as well and a lot of scandal involved. But I wonder if those characters were based upon real people as well. And we just as readers aren't as knowledgeable about it as we all recognize the comic stuff because that's their field. But I wonder if with the television series, if it was similarly based, I just didn't recognize the, uh, the characters. Yeah, Yeah. funny thing along those lines, a friend of mine read Cavalier and Clay. And so before she went to the, you know, the meeting of it, she called up and asked me about what was real and what was, you know, fictional. And so that desire to know, you know, exactly what's real and what's not, I think underlies, you know, with any docudrama almost or, you know, drawn from history, you always want to know, you know, what's true and what's false. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm looking at Satellite Sam right now. And yeah, you wonder, he didn't work in television the same way. So right. uh, it wouldn't be rooted in, you know, those years of discussions at Comic-Con and around the office and so forth. I highly recommend Howard Chaikin's book. Jim and I are actually going to be uh, chatting with him fairly soon about this, amongst other things in his career. Two thumbs up for me. Five stars. Is that the end of it, Alex? Or is that just the first six issue and there's going to be another story arc? So there's going to be another story arc. Howard is in the comic book historian group, and I made a post about what a fun comic it is, like the X-Men in it. Here's another one. The X-Men in it are called the Evolutines. Yeah, like they're evolving teens. So it's just so good. And they have an E, you know, in their chest. Yeah, he said he's working on the next story for Hey Kids Comics Now. So there's going to be a whole other story arc that we will all be uh, treated to. And was there a Neil Adams character? I'm just going to wonder that if I don't ask you. I didn't catch a Neil Adams character. I think these are mostly golden age people who also then existed beyond that and dealt with the times of the 60s and the 80s and the 2000s. I didn't really get the impression that it really gave us much about people that originated in the Silver Age. Okay, should I go next? Yeah, Yeah. give it to us good, Jim. You know, I've had this cough for three weeks, and so I'm going to try to be brief so that I don't go into hacking fit, but (coughs) like that. Let me try. So what the book I selected was How to Read Donald Duck, which is a 1971 book-length essay by Ariel Dorfman and Armand Metalart. And what it is is it critiques Disney comics from a Marxist perspective – It was published in Chile uh, Chile for Chilean audience in 1971, and it became a bestseller in South America. I remember, I think you mentioned this once in the group before. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was introduced to it in 1985. I had heard of it, or 95, when I started film critical studies at USC. That was like the go-to book for film critical studies, which was a surprise to me because there it was, 
on my home turf of comics, and I was very happy to read it. It was written during this brief period of revolutionary socialism in Chile under Salvador Allende, which didn't last much after the book came out, in that in 1973, there was a coup d'etat partly engineered by the U.S. government, which brought dictator Pinochet into power. When Pinochet came into power, How to Read Donald Duck was not just banned, the third printing of it was dumped in its entirety into the ocean. Pre-existing books were gathered up and burned such that the uh, authors actually were sitting watching television and watching their books go up in smoke in government-sponsored book burnings. The book was released in many, many, many languages and a worldwide success, but it did not get distribution in the U.S., because of Disney, because Disney claimed copyright issues and pressured publishers here to not publish it in the United States. 3,500 copies were sent from England over here, and even that was stopped by Disney through the Treasury Department protest. And ultimately, in the 1970s, only 1,500 copies were ever distributed in the United States. By the time I got to grad school, of course, it was widely available and widely distributed in terms of academia. So let's talk about what it was about for a little bit. What it asserted was that Disney comics were innately ideological and designed to spread capitalism through the comics themselves. They were meant for young readers to accept certain rules about capital, about the third world and about gender roles basically a uh, indoctrination into imperialism and capitalism. And I'll give you like a famous example used in the book was that the characters have no descendants, that everyone, it's all on a horizontal playing field and that there are no fathers and there are no sons. There's only uncles and cousins. So everybody is horizontal such that the only level is determined not by any kind of family hierarchy, but by the obvious, by wealth. So Uncle Scrooge is, as an uncle, is favored because of his accumulation of capital, accumulation of wealth, not for any other reason. And it holds up when you think about it. Like, why don't they anybody have descendants or ancestors beyond immediately paternal? The other thing that they notice that also holds up is that it's all about crude competition to accumulate that wealth. Donald is always trying to raise some money, not because he needs food on the table. That seems to be mysterious. It's always about trying to acquire a Christmas tree for the kids or a gift for somebody. So it's all about product, not about a livelihood. The other thing that is true in all of those books is that in terms of upward mobility, it's about luck. It's never about organized labor. It's not about organization or getting a job and sticking to it. It's about the cousin, Donald's cousin, that is just incredibly lucky and finds money all the time or gets Ah. these opportunities. And so all of this was used by these authors to say that this was trying to set some rules of capitalism to indoctrinate the public. The problem with it is it works and makes sense if you're approaching it as a critical study student or if you're approaching it as a Marxist looking for things. But if you actually know anything about these comics, it gets more complicated. For example, they're doing this analysis based upon the Spanish translation of the comics that were done by 
the previous more authoritarian regime or the mechanisms of that rather than this temporary experiment in socialism going on in the country. So the Spanish translations don't read like Karl Barks. It reads like how they change the meaning of it. So, for example, there's in the one of my favorite Barks, uh, Donald Duck stories, uh, Lost in the Andes. In the American translation, Huey, Louie, and Dewey are teaching the natives how to do square dancing in order to, to instill a sense of joy. In the Spanish translation in Chile, the nephews are instead leading them, teaching them how to stand at attention in the presence of superiors. So when you're doing this analysis, it sounds like Disney is enforcing this, but Disney wasn't the one doing the translations in Chile. It was the people there, the power, the structure in that country. So it's a little bit unfair not to be defending Disney, but it's a little unfair to attribute that to him. Another reason it's unfair is Disney, as you guys know, had licensed that property off. This was being done by Western Publishing through Dell, not through Disney like the cartoons. So the book is treating it as whether it's the cartoons or the comics, it's all coming from the same mindset. And that's simply not true. The third thing that I think has to be factored in is the book never mentions or the essay never mentions Karl Barks at all. It doesn't distinguish. And of course, Karl Barks is doing something auteur-like that is very different from some of the other Disney artists. And what he did was sacrifice income in exchange for more freedom in terms of what he was doing. This book uses a fairly small sample size from the mid-1950s. And as Barks continues to work, because he's angry at the pay scale and and he feels used as a worker. So his books actually become more and more addressing those inequities and things. And I think they don't fit the model that's being sold in the How to Read Donald Duck in that regard. So the whole issue with Barks, did he say anywhere that he was unhappy with his working conditions? Did he say that in any interview or anything? I believe he does in later interviews. He mentions that. I haven't read any Barks interviews, so I just wasn't sure. That's really fascinating because he would plot and write his own stories and draw them, right? Isn't that correct? Yeah, and so it would make sense that emotions were building up that they would find their way onto those pages. That's a really fascinating angle. I also find it really interesting how the power structure in the South American country would then translate or almost mistranslate to fit the narrative that they want the kids in their countries to be reading. I never really thought of that, but that makes sense. I would imagine that in a lot of international comics, stuff like that would happen. And what happens that's interesting is now in the English version of this, instead of using the Barks original language, they retranslate it from the Spanish version into a English version, but using the source material of the Spanish version rather than the Barks version of it. So it gets a little confusing, but it's great fun in terms of just it's one of the first instances where you take a large sample of a specific character in comic and you do a a really in-depth critical analysis of the books and you isolate these oddities like why are there no parents involved and why is everybody platonic and 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 that kind of thing and why does Donald not have a job and, and, and they try to do a analysis of it. It's something that 
even today doesn't get done enough. And I wanted to mention one book that came out recently that does do a similar thing, only without the ideology imposed upon it. And that's a Canadian professor, Bart Beatty, did a book called 12 Cent Archie. And what he did was he went through and read every single Archie comic that had a price of 12 cents on it. And then he he wrote little one page or so or two page monographs about different things, some of which are as deep and insightful as the Donald Duck book was, and some are just more general. But I wanted to give a taste of it in that there's things, chapters on Archie's jalopy or United Girls Against Jughead or How Well Does Archie Speak French, Pure Heart the Powerful. It goes through all of these different things, Betty's parents, uh, Mr. Lodge, uh, Mrs. Lodge, Pop Tate's Chocolate Shop, and it draws these conclusions and inconsistencies and consistencies within this large study of, of the books at that time, and it sort of makes an analysis of why Archie was what it was, which was a tremendous seller during this period. Yeah. So. So it's a nice juxtaposition between that original Donald Duck and what you can do with it today in terms of comics culture. I think a lot of times when people think about comics, they almost overfocus or super focus on the superhero genre. But funny animals, teen comics, romance, comedy, you know, there's so many genres out there that it is interesting to see what's going on in those other genres and how that could reflect in other countries and what kind of messages they might be sending out to impressionable readers. That's a really fascinating topic. Yeah, on Saturday, I'm doing a, a paper at WonderCon on how Dracula translates by South American artists in those comics, because he's so Western European aristocracy. And, and so if you're someone like Alberto Breccia, what do you do with Dracula, which he did a lot with? I'm excited about giving that paper. Pete, when you were in grad school, were you assigned this? No, I wasn't. But I did read some version of it at one time as part of cultural studies. But no, I never had it in a class directly. Have you ever taught it? I've never taught it. Well, I haven't really had a situation in which I would teach it. But also, the all the different issues of the translation and so forth seem hard to deal with in a class structure. It would take a lot of contextualization, I think, for the students to really understand those issues. It's more of a historical document in terms of critical studies at this point than right. I think it's it's actually a useful thing it's in its own right. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Pete has written and published his own book on comics. Pete, tell us about the book. Yeah, sure. Well, my book is called Superhero, The Secret Origin of a Genre, from Monkey Brain Books, published in 2006. And it's a book version of my dissertation, which I finished in 2002. So it took a couple of years there to translate it into book form. And in it, as I say in the beginning, this book is not many things. I focus on starting off on what it's not. Semiological analysis, social history of comic books and superhero comics, look at superheroes as myth, cultural analysis of superheroes, because all of those things were done elsewhere. But what hadn't been done elsewhere was just a look at the superhero genre as a genre, right? right? And so that's really what I try to do. And that's why what oftentimes gets pulled out is my definition of the superhero. That's the kind of thing. I, I get little notices from academia.edu 
know, some paper mentions Pete Coogan. I'm like, I bet that's what it is. That chapter in various forms has been reprinted elsewhere. So that's one of the main things that I wanted to try to get across. The idea that the superhero genre is a genre. So it's like a Western. It's like a romantic comedy. It's like detective. It's like all those other genres that you can tell what it is because I get in these arguments, discussions a lot about my definition. And I find that people don't seem to distinguish between what I distinguish is a superhero, a hero who is super and a superhero. That's the protagonist of the superhero genre. So that's sort of my main goal with this book is to establish the idea that the superhero genre is a genre of its own. Right. And one of the problems that gets in there is that kind of by definition, the superhero is hybrid. You know, so you have Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man. It's always the other and the one brought together. And as a result of that, I think that the superhero genre hybrids a lot with detective with science fiction. As you see with the Marvel movies, oftentimes what they do is they have a a side genre or a backup genre that runs alongside the main superhero genre. So like Ant-Man is a heist film. Guardians of the Galaxies is just science fiction, that kind of thing. But And would uh, you say Logan was a Western? Yeah, that's Logan draws. I mean, it does so in such an obvious way, right? (laughs) Would you say that Batman, just by definition, is a hybrid of superhero and crime genre? Yeah, exactly. I mean, th- th- or and noir. Then, and noir, yeah. And, and you know, Superman is superhero and science fiction, just like Legion of Superheroes. Is it science fiction? Is it superheroes? It's both. And so that's a thing about the superhero genre that works well. I mean, you can do that kind of thing with a Western. You could have a romantic comedy set in a Western, except one of those genres would really have to predominate because what is at stake? What is the conception of society that's at stake, right? Is it about romantic comedies about bringing two people together? The Western is generally about establishing order on the frontier. It's that epic moment when civilization is going to fall or stand. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to get those two things to work together, but superheroes you can easily blend in the genre. I thought that one of the things, I understand why they went with Tom Holland as Spider-Man, because he's fantastic. But I would have liked to have sort of seen if Marvel had brought in Spider-Man to do it through Spider-Girl, and you have Tobey Maguire return as Spider-Man, and then you get you know generational family melodrama, but family comedy as well. And it works both as it would work both genres at once. And right. that's you, you, you almost get spirit. that with Spider-Verse, though, right? Yeah, oh, abs- that's absolutely true. With Into the Spider-Verse, you get all the family stuff, but it's also straightforward superhero stuff. Genre goes in cycles. Could you explain a little bit about that? I, could you use shots to some degree yeah. in, in your methodology? Explain that a little bit for everybody. Yeah, sure. So Thomas Schatz and Hollywood Genres came up with theory to explain genre evolution. And it basically works. There's some problems with it, but it basically works. So he has the experimental stage, classic, refinement, and Baroque. And what happens is it's it's kind of a preceding succession of ever-building self-awareness. 
So in the experimental stage, the creators experiment, right? They figure things out. In the classic right. stage, both the audience and the creators know what they're doing. They know what the genre is. In the refinement stage, it builds on the classic stage, but not much new is brought in. And then the Baroque stage, the genre becomes the subject of the genre. So rather than having superhero comic books, you have comic books about superheroes. Right. And you get death a lot. And this fits neatly with the golden through the Iron Ages. So the Golden Age, they're experimenting, figuring out what superheroes are going to be. In the Silver Age, that's kind of the classic. That is the classic stage where, you know, it's all settled, but it evolves. There's a lot of creativity because really they and the audience, everybody knows what's going on. In the Refinement, which is the Bronze Age, basically the 1970s, you know, if you think about it, there's not much from the 1970s that's new. In some ways, not that much has been created since the 1960s. But you get a character like Nova, who is essentially Green Lantern and Spider-Man put together. You know, you get Spider-Woman and She-Hulk, Ms. Marvel, you know, created for copyright reasons, but those are refinements of what already exists. Do you like Nova? Did you like that comic? Yeah, I, I read it. And uh, yeah. I liked it, although it's been a long time since I've seen it. So I know I like Dick Ryder Nova a lot. Jim knows that about yeah. me. <laughs> Dick, uh, Dick Ryder, the way his character really grew with time. <laughs> I don't know what's so funny, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that'd be uh, a hard, felt like hard, the way he and, and his, his character really thickened with time. I, I felt <laughs> like I really appreciate it. And, you know, from the New Warriors and on. And um, so, yeah, I. I hope they bring him back to some degree. I think he's out of the comics for now. Yeah, I think they could pump him up. And, right, uh, they could pump him back up. You're right. I just saw a YouTube video that the possibility of a Nova movie exists. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so, but then in the Iron Age, it's the Baroque stage. You know, you see a lot of, if you look like the X-Men, the new X-Men, it's kind of a precursor of the right. Iron Age where you get a rehashing of everything, but also it's done in a really self-aware way. Yeah. And also death. You get the death of Captain Marvel, Batman, the Dark Knight Returns, the universe dies. You know, you get these literally Baroque expanded, extended universes. And then to that, I added what I call the reconstruction stage and the Renaissance age. So in the reconstruction stage, the genre is rebuilt, but with an understanding of everything that's gone before. Okay. When did that happen? This is the problem is that it's nice to have nice, neat boundaries, but we is that, is that post-90s then? Well, yeah. So if you think about Batman, the animated series, that kicks off this feeling, right? Like Batman, the animated series, it feels like classic Batman, but it's informed by the whole history of Batman, right? It picks resonant moments, resonant characters and tropes and so forth. And it's kind of timeless, right? It doesn't feel like set at any particular time. It has, it has elements of the kind of 1940s, but it's also, there are other things about it that seem clearly, you know, in the 1990s. So it's a timeless rebuilding. And then that got brought into comics themselves in a lot of different series. Kingdom Come was a response in some ways, like to Watchmen. Watchmen is a, in many ways a deconstruction of superhero. Kingdom Come tries to show how superheroes can work and can operate. Marvel's does that a little bit. Marvel, it really didn't, in DC, it kind of kicked in around 96. Marvel, it kicked in around 2000 when Joe Quesada took over. And, you know, you got a lot of kind of self-awareness within yeah. the genre, but it was also, there was a kind of almost paring back 
so that completes the genre cycle. And and I, I don't. I, think... almost, I almost feel like um, Buziak and Perez's Avengers was like that. Yes, that's right. Well, Buziak Astro City is like one of the great examples of yes. that. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And Astro City shows, and I've taught Astro City several times. Astro City takes, you know, one of the conventions or one of the archetypes and plays it out. But it also makes use of and is an exemplar of what I call the bystander subgenre. So rather than having the superhero be the main character, you have a bystander. Marvels does this, too, uh, with photographer Phil Sheridan. A lot of stories in Astro City are that way. So it's told from somebody else's point of view who's on the side. Yeah, exactly. So, Alex, we could apply this to what you're currently reading, because if you look at Robot Man, that's a perfect example, too, because you have the Golden Age Robot Man, and then you have the next, the refinement of it, which is part of the Doom Patrol and the Cliff Steele version. Mm-hmm. But then we get to what you're reading now, the Grant Morrison version, which, Pete, wouldn't you say that's the Baroque version yeah. of... And so you you have those three, and they follow the formula almost perfectly in terms of the evolution and the cycles. Which actually yeah. makes Doom Patrol a lot of fun, because to see it from this science fiction, very cold steel perspective of Robot Man... But in this very magical world, it is very interesting in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as soon as you put a T-shirt on him, he becomes something else entirely. You know, yeah. because, because he's the punk robot man now, which is really interesting because at the same time, as I mentioned before, you've got Gerard Way's Umbrella Academy on television at the same time as this, which is also doing a, a Baroque version of the X-Men doing it like that. And yet it's subtly different because he's bringing a gothic mentality to it rather than a punk and grunge mentality. So it's it's really fun to watch those two going almost head to head with each other. Yeah, which is funny when you get back to the original, you know, that X-Men and Doom Patrol essentially started at the same time. And they're both takes on the same kind of thing. Actually, that gets into something that I try to do in my book, which is. I go back to, there's a couple of backgrounds with the superhero. In American superheroes, American heroes, you go back to Daniel Boone. But Daniel Boone had three kind of characteristics, character portrayals. And two of those get picked sort of and focused on and move forward. But I also look at kind of earlier versions of, of the characters in Pulp. So you get Gladiator, Philip Wiley's Gladiator ties neatly with Superman, Herland ties with Wonder Woman. There's a book called Odd John, which created the the term Homo Superior for right. mutants. There's another book called Children of the Atom, which has been applied to the X Men. It's about a school where children of atomic workers, atomic uh, plant workers, who are super intelligent, come together. And there's this religious leader, Billy Mundy, who leads a crusade against them. It feels like there's no way that Lee and or Kirby didn't draw on these books. Right. Um, I was able to ask Stanley about it and he doesn't, you know, he says, no, I didn't, didn't read any of those things. On the other hand, you know, that was 50, 70, 80 years ago. Right. And so right. he or Kirby may have read it and Lee didn't know anything about it. Um, Kirby read it. Yeah. So I'm trying to, you know, that's one of the things that I try to do is dig out, a lot of that lost stuff in two chapters, well, really, it's in the prehistory of the superhero, and trace how 
the genre in the what I call the antediluvian stage, you know, the pre-stage, the pre-cursors of the superheroes came up because that's one of the problems with the definition in most people's minds is that they say, oh, well, what about this? What about that? Because there's some element of the superhero genre in that earlier piece. But it's really how they fused together, how Siegel and Schuster fused all that together. Right, they did. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do in the book is really focus on the superhero genre as a genre. And I think I did that successfully, except except for the extent to which people argue with me about it. So (laughs) well, I remember you and Bob Bierbaum once had a disagreement if Popeye fit the definition of superhero. And Bob was also on our show um, before. And basically what his point of view was that Popeye has super strength and nigh invulnerable, not totally, almost kind of like the tick in in a way, and that he has a set outfit that he wears. So that makes him super. In the new strip, he was referred to as a Superman back in 1932, but technically still does not fit the definition of superhero as a genre. And explain to the audience why that is. Sure. Well, it's a couple of things. One is that Popeye was identified as a Superman, but so was Tarzan. Right. So were lots of figures after Nietzsche. And you, for example, have been described as that. Yeah, there you go. And that's what I call the pulp ubermensch, where you have these characters in pulp fiction, Doc Savage and others, who referred to as a Superman, but that clearly comes out of Nietzsche. In fact, uh, James Cagney in a film is referred to, you know, where he says, I'm not a Superman. Anyway, but that idea of the Superman, the ubermensch, was running all through early 20th century culture. And so when Popeye is referred to as a Superman, it's not in reference to the superhero genre, which at that point didn't exist. And and the costume, why does that outfit matter? It matters because Superman has a costume, right? So it's a projection backwards. When Popeye, as a sailor, wore a sailor suit, and really, in the, I wouldn't say in the comic strips, all the characters could all dress the same because that's an easy way to draw them, right? And so that only counts because of an awareness of the genre. And that's yeah. another problem because what... Beerbaum is doing by calling Popeye a superhero is he's paying attention to the semantics. So he's got powers and he's got what Beerbaum calls a costume. Now, my definition of superhero is mission, powers, and identity. And identity is code name and costume that iconically identify dual identity. The character. So it's dual identity integral to the superhero? It's, it is integral to the genre, but it evolves. The genre evolves kind of away from it with the Fantastic Four. But not entirely. It's still there. But the main thing is the semantics of powers and costume, right? If that fit, then Popeye would actually be called, he does call Popeye the Sailor Man, but he would actually be called Sailor Man. But the syntax of Popeye's adventures doesn't fit the syntax of the superhero at all. Popeye goes out on these adventures. Popeye is greedy and selfish and, you know, boorish and all these kinds of things. And he's played for laughs and he's comedic and believe me i love ec seeger you know but when he goes off to form spinachova it's not a superhero story it's a satire of america right and there's not really anything popeye is he's never selfless right he's always in it for something when you overbalance on the semantics then popeye gets identified as a superhero when you overbalance on the syntactics indiana jones Temple of Doom, that's a superhero story. You know, 
because it fits the American monomyth story. You have an outsider who comes in, sets things to right, and leaves. You know, and Indiana Jones in that film is not there. He doesn't stay at the Temple of Doom really to get some archaeological treasure, but he stays there to free the people from the oppression. And right. that's more of a superhero story. So that's one of the issues. So mission. The, mission does matter. Mission matters. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Comic Book Historians podcast. We did another second look edition. We all learned a lot. Jim is my uh, trusty co-host. And Pete, thank you so much for joining us today. Yep. And I'll be happy to be back any other time you want me. 